On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Aaron Davis about the theology of disability. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is a theology of disability? Are there various views on it? What are they if there are? Why is it important for the theology to bring its own research agenda and voice to the discussion of disability? And all sorts of fun questions like if the consummation is supposed to set all things right, why would anyone think that disabilities would remain? How can further research on disability from a theological perspective aid the church? What ways can the church be more hospitable towards those who have disabilities and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. I'm joined by Nate Martin, who is a pastor here in North Carolina. And today we're going to be talking to my friend, soon to be eventually Dr. Aaron Davis. So I'll preemptively speak that into the future. But if you know anything about us as the London Lyceum, we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. We think the church has been given a, a lot of really like... Um, I don't know, platitudes or just things without any substance, not good answers. We haven't thought seriously about a lot of theological topics and we're paying for it. And you see that Mark Knoll, the scandal of the evangelical mind, et cetera, that seems to still be ongoing. There is a recovery that is ongoing, I think. Uh, and we're trying to be a part of that. And one way we've tried to do that is to hopefully cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Because we don't think the antidote to no thinking is just only sort of like a rigorous argument. It also includes a virtuous disposition on how you treat people, how you how you go about the whole thing. Because I think James 3 is pretty clear that the wisdom that comes from above is not just knowing a bunch of facts, but knowing a bunch of things in the right sort of way, meekness, humility, etc. So enough of me talking. I want to talk to Aaron about the topic of disability. This is something that I've had quite a few people reach out to talk about, and I don't know a lot about the subject. I've thought about it a little bit. Aaron's thought about it a lot. He's doing research on it now. And I run it just timing-wise, it worked out really well. I had a list of people that I was going to reach out to eventually, but Aaron reached out to me because there was a podcast that we both listened to that talked about disability, and he had some thoughts and ideas. But Nate also has a son who has a disability. So this is going to be a really fun topic because he'll be able to bring some some good questions. So Aaron, before we jump in, tell me a little bit about yourself and what was it that made you interested in studying and researching this area in particular? Yeah, thank you, Jordan. And it's it's good to be on the podcast. I am a fan. I do listen. So um, it is enjoyable to me to be here for multiple reasons. But the way I got interested in disability is sort of twofold. That on the one hand, there is an academic interest. I think it makes us ask really probing questions um, because when you assume, assume a sort of normate view of the human body, you can sort of just categorize everybody into like an in-group or an out-group for normal or not normal or whatever. Um, it can make you overlook some of the questions that acknowledging the variegated forms that human life can take would otherwise make you ask about what does it mean to be the image of God? What does it mean to be a human in the first place or to be a person? Are those things separate? Like all these sorts of things that in analytic theology, we love teasing apart. Um, it, it stimulates a lot in those areas. Um, but then also, 
I do have what I would call like a pastoral concern for these sorts of things. I'm not ordained, but I worked for five years of parish ministry in a couple of parishes of the Episcopal Church in Virginia and North Carolina um, before I started my doctoral work. And so you work with kids who uh, have various disabilities, parents as well, people who sort of sit on the linemen of disabled or not disabled as well. Like the kid with a speech delay may not necessarily count as disabled under the American Disabilities Act, but he still needs different sorts of assistances to be as involved as everybody else is. And that's something I think we should be thinking about if we care a lot about the Great Commission and a lot about bringing children closer to God and everything. So um, it's it's really dual fold. It comes from those two different angles. Yeah. So in opening this discussion up, I thought, well, I could start with just let's talk about disability, but I was like, that's going to take a while. And I almost want to start with just why does theology care about disability first as the initial sort of question for the lay of the land? Because I don't know. I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but this theology of disability doesn't seem like something that's been a major topic over the century. Like if you go read the history of the church, there's not like uh, an entire locus dedicated to theology of disability. So what is it that theology is doing here? And how? when did this become more of an interest in thinking about this topic from a theological perspective? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, with a lot of topics, you find that they're not necessarily in the literature as such. So they're not in the scriptural um, autographs as such, and you don't find a section in the Summa in it or whatever. But the topics are there, maybe just under sort of different descriptions. Um, so when we talk about disability theology as such, you know, with that name and everything, that's something that is really young um, in the scheme of theological things. So disability theology really works at the intersection of theology, understandably, and then disability studies. And disability studies really only starts existing in the 1980s. It sort of comes out of um, greater interest in and cognizance of issues regarding um, disability rights, like from legal perspectives and all this sort of stuff in the US, UK and Canada. And so the first program that we get in disability studies, you can earn a degree in this, is in 1994 at Syracuse. Um, so that's really young. And of course, theology, whenever we want to do stuff in theology, that's going to lag behind the actual um, discipline in a one to one way, right? So when we're doing like, philosophy of mind, we're going to be a little bit behind the neuropsychiatric research and all that sort of stuff that we're playing with. Um, so you get the sort of seminal work in many ways of disability theology, Nancy Iceland's The Disabled God um, in 1994. So we're less than 30 years out from sort of the start of disability theology as such. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't come up all throughout Christian history. Like Jesus is clearly interacting with disabled people, like in the healing narratives, in uh, in John, the man born blind, you say in the Old Testament with the Levitical codes and um, with Jacob and the wrestling uh, with God and your hip coming out of socket and stuff, we would tend to call something like that a disability these days. So it's smattered all over. And I said, oh, we don't find a section of it in the Summas. But Aquinas does talk about what we would now call disability. Um, Augustine talks about it. Luther talks about it. Um, so it's it's a part of our heritage, even if it's not been discussed under these terms um, until relatively recently. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So I guess I'll go ahead and just ask you to give me the lay of the land on disability right now. So tell me, like, what are the main views on it? You, before this interview, you sent me several resources, and one of them talked about, it kind of like bucketed the views as moral, medical, social, and then the limits model. So I'd love just to hear you kind of like summarize those because I would guess most people who haven't got given a lot of thought 
to the topic of disability don't have a robust framework or don't have like the, I don't know, just the, I, maybe the framework is the right word. They just don't have that for like all the different models that are out there. Yeah, well, there's a sort of commonsensical, quote unquote, view of disability that I think a lot of us hold, right? That, oh, a disability is something that you have when your body doesn't quite work right, or it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, however you want to flesh that out. But when we do this analytic thing and we start trying to tease it apart, that definition is really squishy and funky, right? Because I don't have the same level of leg operation that Usain Bolt does. And so it seems like there's some sort of defect in my ability to run because I definitely can't run as fast as he can. But no one's going to say, Aaron, you're disabled because you can't sort of make the um, the track times that Bolt does. And so it, it begs that question of like, what is it that we're really talking about? And like you pointed out, that's Deborah Beth Creamer's Religion Compass article, which I think if you have access to it is a really good place to start. It's a little dated now because it comes out in 2012 um, and we're now over a decade beyond there. Um, but she does use that sort of fourfold typology of moral, medical, social, and limits models of disability. So I don't necessarily use that myself. Part of the reason she teases it apart in that way is because the limits model is her own model. And so she's setting it in its own category. Like, we all think that we're doing completely novel and innovative things, but other people might go, ah, I think I'd put that in with some other stuff. So um, the moral model is just this idea. It's sort of what we could think of as a really ancient view of disability. Like disability is something that happens when you make the gods angry or whatever. Um, or if you're monotheistic, it's still ancient. It's something when God is angry at you, we find some sort of hints towards this, that maybe this is how like ancient Israelites are thinking of it. Um, and so we see Jesus like repudiating that later on, uh, which means the view was there. But I tend to not worry about that one so much just because you don't tend to find many people who hold to something like a moral model these days. I really can't think of anybody who's still walking around, at least in like the literature today, um, or even anybody in churches that I've encountered who would say, yeah, disability is something that God gives you to punish you. Um, though I'm sure, I'm sure that there are people who do things like that. Um, and then on the other end, I said, I would sort of not count the limits model as its own thing like she wants to. I get why she wants to do that, but I would sort of disagree. And so I kind of collapse things into mainly what we're talking about is medical and social models of disability. Other ways of putting that, um, Elizabeth Barnes uses sort of twofold typology, too. She's hugely influential in this area um, in philosophy of disability. She's not doing disability theology, I should say. Um, but she talks about bad difference and mere difference views. And those sort of largely map onto the medical and the social categories. So at bottom, a medical model's core idea is going to be something like a disability is just a bad difference of a disabled person, which if you can, you should either prevent it or you should eliminate it. So it's just that common, quote unquote, commonsensical, my body doesn't work or my mind doesn't work in the way that it should. Um, that's the sort of privation on my ability to act or whatever. It's an impairment or whatever. And so that makes me disabled. Um, and so the fact that it is a bad difference that you view that difference as um, privation on your well-being or your ability to function or whatever, um, that's sort of what sets it apart from a social model, which is going to say, yeah, there is a difference here, but the badness of it, the bad making properties, we might want to say, are not counterfactually stable. Like if you look at your range of possible worlds, if we play into possible world semantics, it's not the case that universally and always there's no trans world badness to, um, to borrow from planning, or there's no trans world badness to disability. It's something that happens when you're in certain types of situations. So if you're congenitally paraplegic, 
but you're in a possible world where people are really, really accepting a paraplegia and uh, you've got great wheelchair technology or just, you know, you can come up with all sorts of scenarios where you seem like you could get rid of a lot of the bad making effects of not being able to just walk unassisted, but nevertheless, you still would be congenitally paraplegic. You wouldn't get rid of the disability. So that's sort of the difference between them. The medical model, um, it gets talked about a lot polemically in disability studies and disability theology, but it's not always super well defined. Um, so one definition I like is really recent from Justice Kuhn, who wrote this piece in philosophical studies called the medical model with a human face, like trying to sort of make it a little bit nicer. And he says that a feature F is a disability if and only if F is an enduring biological dysfunction that causes it bear a significant degree of impairment. This is a nice tight analytic definition that we could have for it. Um, and then there's some different ways of construing disability socially as well, but I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole right now. Uh, thank you for, for laying out the land uh, so hopefully. So building off just what you mentioned, the social model, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, equal access to public spaces or the language that we use or, or equal rights. And uh, we can agree that there's really, really good things to think about there. Um, but can you maybe speak to why perhaps maybe that's not the, uh, the best place to stop? Like we have to talk about those things, but theology has to have its own voice, its own discussion about humanity, what it means to relate to God, what it means to belong to the body of Christ. So can you just talk about why theology has to have its own voice in this discussion? Yeah, I think that's a multifaceted thing. So there's a sort of pragmatic approach, right, that maybe theology brings something to the conversation which is lacking otherwise, and which would just be helpful to have. So there's a really interesting book that came out near the end of last year with Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame Press by Devin Stahl, who's at Baylor, called Disabilities Challenge to Theology. I'm not going to remember the whole subtitle, but it's basically on like bioethics and the metaphysics of medicine and such. And she really points out that um, contemporary medical practice, all medical practice, but contemporary medical practice, um, especially because that's the one that we're living through, it has a lot of metaphysical assumptions. So it assumes that stuff is bad for a human person because it has a presumptive telos for humanity or whatever. Eyes should hear, or I should hear, ears should hear, I should see. If your eyes hear, that's a different thing. That's synesthesia. Um, but it's hard in a lot of cases for practitioners of medicine to really get out from under their own presumptions because you just you just assume them. It's hard, like, you know, the fish that swims in water, it doesn't think anything about it. It's just the way it is. And so it could be the case that theologians being particularly equipped to straddle the line between the clinical world where they're rendering pastoral care to people in hospital care or hospice care, those beginning and end of life issues that you encounter as a minister, but who also thinks about these things in a different milieu as a theologian, and then also probably doing philosophical thinking as well. Um, so th there's a pragmatic side of we should be doing this because we have a voice that needs to be heard here. And I think that's really important. But then I think there's also just uh, box standard theology concerns that we should have, right? So if we are a gospel people and gospel means good news, if you're presenting the gospel to people, it needs to actually be good news to them. So if you have somebody who, let's say that they are congenitally paraplegic to stick with that sort of um, example, and they like being paraplegic. It's a part of them. They value it in the same way that maybe I value like my eye color, or other sort of different uh, facts about my existence. And you tell them, oh, God is so good and Jesus is so great because when Jesus comes back, uh, he's going to get rid of that wheelchair and you're going to run around and do all this sort of stuff. And they go, I don't really want to live like that, though. I like the way I am now. 
um, we run the risk of um, doing a similar thing to when in the past church authorities were sort of skeptical about whether there would be men and women in heaven or would we just all be men because it's so much obviously better to be a man, right? Um, so there's that. I'm particular. So there's there's great commission concerns there. I'm also particularly normed by the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. We, I think, a lot of the time love to trot out the idea that you should serve the least of these, and that's real important. But we think about it as like an option. That, oh, you should do this, and that's a great thing that God will like reward you for, or whatever. Look at what Jesus says, and we leave off that last little bit in verses 45 and 46, where the people who aren't doing those things, it's not just oh, well, you didn't do a good thing and it would have been better for everybody if you had. So that stinks, but whatever. It's truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then they go away into eternal punishment and stuff. And we don't have to get too deep into the soteriological weeds to think that maybe Jesus is saying, it's really important that you do this. And if you don't, you're really missing something. Um, so there's there's both of those aspects. There's also just the fact that ableist assumptions about um, the lives of disabled people and their worth or lack thereof just have historically led to really eugenic outcomes. And so we just have to be aware of the outworkings of our um, of our theology, like what they actually do on the ground. You can't just work from the ground up, I don't think, because then you just end up with a theology of ministry, which is like, well, it works, so we're doing it, versus something that's grounded in the historic testimony of the church, which is grounded in the historic witness of the human individual son of God incarnate Jesus Christ. Um, but you do need to be aware of it. You can't operate without it. Um, and then there's the, the, the really baseline thing that um, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast cares a lot about that we want clear thinking. And so disability makes us ask a lot of really interesting theological questions. And if we want to do good theology, we want to capture a lot of variegated data and disability gives us a whole lot of interesting data to work with. So I, th I think it's really multifaceted. You could really say, what is it that is most interesting to me in that and just run with it and you could be doing disability theology. Yeah. So let me just go ahead and cut to the chase with the question because I'm curious. It seems that there's probably a common intuition that's going to say, well, look, I look at the new heavens and the new earth. I even look at the gospels and, and this sort of storyline arc of healing all of these disabilities, these diseases. Um, why would we think, why would anyone think that those would remain at some level in the eschaton or somewhere else? Yeah. And I think it's important when we ask that question before we immediately start jumping to an answer to realize when we say, so why would this exist in the new creation if the new creation is perfect? There's a presumption baked in there, right? That you couldn't possibly be perfect and disabled, that there is something mm. bad about it. There's something that um, sort of eats at the core of what's good about humanity or whatever, in the same way that if we said, well, but why wouldn't everybody just be a man? And <laughs> because isn't it so obviously better to be a man or different thinkers have thought, um, like I think it's Augustine and Aquinas both generally think that we're going to be like 30 when we're resurrected because that's about the age that Jesus is. So that's obviously the perfect age for humanity to be. And this, I'm not too far off from 30. I could see that there's great things about being 30, but I don't know that we need to homogenize everybody to 30 in order for the new creation to be perfect. Um, so we need to really dig into why are we making the assumption that motivates the question in the first place. Um, but then the answer is just, you don't have to assume that disability is actually bad. So you could say that disability is a mere difference. Maybe there are bad aspects about it. So you could have bad making features of it or whatever. But 
that may not be the actual core of disability. And that's sort of why it matters how you conceptualize disability. So if you just unconsciously have that medical model of, oh, it's a, it's a bad difference. It's that feature F Justice Kuhn's talking about where you have um, some degree of impairment that you'd say, well, do we really want like that sort of thing in the new creation? But if you just deny that model, you have some other model, then maybe it's not so much of an issue. And that's what some of my work is, is trying to do is to say, how does this stuff stretch into the eschaton? Um, which I think we can really just sort of think of as theological teleology, like the ends of of everything. Uh, no, that, that that's helpful. Thank you. Um, I know this can be a controversial question, um, and perhaps this is too much for us to deal with now, but given what you just said, how do we think about uh, the reality of sin, how it relates to uh, disability or not? Um, can we have a homodiology and um, also a theology of disability that um, are consistent with one another, or are they not related at all? Like, just kind of walk through the lay of the land there, and just how difficult it is, and what we should think of it. Uh, I know that's kind of a, a big one, but uh, help us think through the best you can. Yeah. So, as as a fallen people, humanity, um, homardiology is always going to have a role, right? Um, so, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to say that sin or. Uh, the fall is what causes disability, which I think is the place that a lot of us go that, well, if, if Adam and Eve had ever left, like not get too deep into your doctrines of creation or whatever. So, um, but let's just say you've got your Adam and your Eve and they never sin. Like, would there be any disability? I'll, it seems like people would want to say, no, there wouldn't be. But again, when we start digging past the surface of that, we scratch it a little bit. Why is it that we think that? Because if you said, well, if Adam and Eve had never, um, fallen they never left the garden all this sort of stuff um and then you followed up and so there would no, be no races everybody would be the exact same race i think a lot of people would raise an eyebrow and go why why is it that you think there would be there would never at any point in human development be any sort of difference between races as humanity spreads across the world um so th th there's still a need to question like the background assumptions there but it doesn't mean that you chuck out your homardiology. So Amos Young does a lot of work on this. And some of his stuff is a little bit dated as well. So he's got this huge magisterial theology and Down syndrome book from 2007. And you can tell that he's writing in 2007. It's still like working um, with some preliminary ideas of disability. And the, the disabled person's perspective sometimes gets a little bit too homogenous in his view versus people from the same era like Deborah Beth Creamer also in 2007 is going to say there is no perspective that you can call the disabled person's perspective. You have to deal with a lot of different voices. Um, but I say all that just to keep it in mind when I'm talking about um, Amos's work. He puts a lot of emphasis on the idea that sin is hugely involved in disability, but it's not that it's causing disability in some way. It's that the reason people are disabled in many cases, like the reason they can't um, function to their fullest in society or whatever, is not necessarily just because of their bodies. There is something about their bodies, their minds or whatever, but it's also because the non-disabled sin against them. They marginalize them or oppress them or whatever. And so at the end of Theology and Down Syndrome in the little epilogue, he has this really pastoral prophetic call of you having read all this, are you ready to repent of your sin against your disabled brothers and sisters and to like, join them in doing the work of the hands of the Lord and these, these sorts of things. He's Pentecostal as well. So he's very fine sitting in that sort of uh, prophetic mode. Um, but I say all that just to say that I think homardiology is deeply involved in how we think about disability, but it's just not necessarily in the ways that we would assume. Does that make sense? And when I say, does that make sense? I don't mean, um, are you understanding me? I mean, am I being coherent? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very coherent. Very, very, very clear. 
Um, with, that, with that being said, what, what do you think the future looks like in disability studies and theology? What questions need to be explored? What questions um, uh, perhaps uh, are interesting to you that you haven't really seen dealt with? Um, um, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, funny as it may sound, one of the big things to still be worked through is what is disability? You would think, well, that should have been the first thing that we got settled. But then if you want to do Trinitarian theology, you find out, oh, we still haven't figured that out either. So sometimes our core issues sort of sit around and linger and we keep wrestling with them. So disability theology and disability studies in general is going to say we don't want to have that bad difference view. We don't want to have that uh, medical view, however we want to um, sort of clothe that thing. But as far as social models go, there's a lot of different ways to construe it. So Deborah Beth Creamer with her limits model, um, she wants to really reorient how we're thinking about humanity and ablement, quote unquote, or however you want to phrase that, and draw attention to the fact that we're all limited fundamentally. And so disabled people are limited in different ways than non-disabled people. But that doesn't necessarily mean the things that we sometimes assume that it means. It doesn't mean that they have some sort of teleological failure or whatever, um, and so she sort of puts herself in a different place than social models because of that reorientation. I tend to think that the limits model just is a kind of social model. Um, like, I just think that it also makes many of these same assumptions, like that core idea for social models is that disability exists because of very social conditions that persons experience. It's not a thing in itself. Uh, Elizabeth Barnes says it doesn't carve at the joints. It's not a metaphysical kind or whatever. Um, and so I think the limits model does still fall into there. Uh, but then you've got other ones too. So Elizabeth Barnes's value neutral model of disability from her 2016, the minority body, hugely influential, still very highly discussed. Um, and I tend to incline towards something like that uh, myself. And so she wants to say that a disabled person is physically disabled in a context C, if and only if in some bodily state, or excuse me, I've read two lines together. I'll just read the definition. It'll be a lot easier. Um, even if a little technical. So she says a person S is physically disabled in a context C, if and only if S is in some bodily state X and the rules for making judgments about solidarity employed by the disability rights movement classify X in a context C as among the physical conditions that they're seeking to promote justice for. So you've got the subjective piece, you've got the um, thing about the disability rights movement saying, well, these are the sorts of bodies and these are the sorts of persons that we're trying to promote justice for. But you've also got, there is actually something about this person. It's not completely untethered from reality or whatever. And I, I tend to like that quite a bit, but there's still a lot to be discussed there. And so you've got people like uh, Kevin Tempe as well, who's going to go the other direction and say, yeah, there actually is no unified concept of disability. It's like a cluster concept. And so we don't have one central thing. Um, but it's important to keep having these discussions because a lot of people may be familiar with Eleanor Stump's uh, 2018 atonement book. And there was some flack that she caught from, I mean, she's caught at different points. It was with wandering in darkness in 2010 too, but the fact that she do in doing all her mind reading stuff uses autistic people and autistic children, particularly as a kind of like example of how mind reading goes wrong. And that that has been problematic for autistic people and how they're viewed that like, Oh, there's your, you're not being fully human or something. You're missing some sort of fundamental human communicative thing. Um, and so she's really thought about this in her 2022 image of God. She does a little bit of disability theology herself. She agrees with Tempe that there's no like single unified aspect uh, or single unified model of disability that captures everything. And she says, yeah, disability can, um, it can be coexistent with your getting your uh, deepest heart's desires, which she has a Thomist view of that. So it's not that you can just desire anything. It's actually like willing God's good for you and everything. Um, but 
Stump, I don't think anyone's going to call Stump a disability theologian per se, but she realized how important this stuff is to her work and has tried to incorporate it. Um, so I think that's going to be the big thing <laughs> as we continue to go. There's lots of other aspects that we'd want to get into too, like bioethics, like how do we think of beginning and end life issues, all this sort of stuff. But at bottom, a lot of it is still how do we conceptualize um, disability and we continue to sort of uh, fight about that a little bit. I do have a question about Kevin Tempe's view because I, th- I haven't read all of the stuff that he's written on it, but from what I have seen, he seems to say, you know, my child with a disability, if, if they were healed, they would lose something of their identity and therefore we, he wouldn't want the healing. And I'm not, if I'm mischaracterizing his view, you tell me that, but that seems like, I think most people are probably going to say that's very counterintuitive from just like a, you know, if I talk to everybody on the street, they'd probably be like, what, why would you want that? So like, help me think through why someone would say that. And then what are the typical like counter arguments that they say, well, here's the reason why I want it. Yeah. So the first sort of response would be to go back to that idea that, um, I mean, in analytic philosophy, we run on intuition, basically. It's all about priming intuition pumps. And I have this intuition. You don't share it with me. I'm trying to get you on board with me or whatever. And I think that's fine. Cause at a certain level, what do we have other than our intuitions when we're doing some of this basic thinking? But it's also really important to understand that our intuitions um, don't come to us as a tabula rasa. Like we're not the perfect objective thinker or whatever. We're formed by a conceptual um, context that we're in. And so we say, well, why would anybody want that? Like, why would you want to be disabled instead of not disabled? But it it's not that long ago, I keep bringing it up, but it's not that long ago that um, it was very common to say, why would you want to be a woman instead of a man? And these days, that just seems wildly misogynistic to say, oh, well, it's just obviously better to be a man. Like, look at all, you list all these different things um, that make it so much better. Um, you're not going to have people nodding along with you there in this day and age, but you would have at some point. And so that should give us sort of, I think, prima facie reason to doubt maybe that our intuitions give us the best sort of insight into the issue. Um, the other one, the other response that you'd want to have um, is if we're looking at, I'd use the phrase already, the eschatology sort of like theological teleology. So if we're really focused on what is God's actual end for us, um, that's where your concept of disability becomes important. So like, how could this actually be existent in God's ultimate ends for an individual in a way that still reconciles with the biblical testimony about like the wipe away every tear, no pain, all this sort of stuff. Um, but that doesn't necessarily require that it has to go away. Cause that identity, that identity concern, which I do think you're right in pulling that out of Tempe, it comes out in a lot of places. Like this is Young's big thing. Um, and he gets into a little bit of trouble. There's a back and forth between him and Ryan Mullins and Ars Disputande. That's a little old at this point. It's like 2011, 2012, um, where, Ryan's pointing out that Amos kind of gets a little bit fast and loose with what gets called Hauerwas's dictum, which is funny that it, it gets that name, right? It seems like it's really authoritative, but it's actually a kind of throwaway line in a chapter that Hauerwas contributed to a book in the 80s. Um, it's not like this big dogmatic thing that he's centering a lot on, um, but people have used it for a lot. And it's basically, um, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to quote it one to one, but it's just to eliminate the disability is to eliminate the individual. This idea that if you take away somebody's disability, you don't have the same numerical individual that you would um, have had before. And Ryan sort of points out that that just doesn't seem to be the case. Like if you take somebody 
who's uh, paraplegic and you make them walk, I don't think anybody is going to say you destroyed the metaphysical identity of that person. Um, but I, I think part of this issue is that we tend to use the term identity in some different ways. Um, so David Effort uh, has a good discussion of this in his contribution to the edited book, um, The Lost Sheep and Philosophy of Religion, um, where he points out, I forget who he draws from, um, but he draws from a different philosopher. And she says that we essentially have two big ways in which we want to talk about um, identity. You could say like an objective or a metaphysical sense sort of um, what you are fundamentally. And then there's a more, what we call narratival identity. She doesn't use this term, but like a narratival type selfhood um, or self-perception, which is also very importantly our identity, but it's just not in the same way as that sort of metaphysical one. I'll use the term metaphysical just to keep it consistent. Um, and so what I would want to say in response to a question like yours, like why would, if, if you have someone like, Kevin's kid who says, I don't want to like lose my disability. Um, we would want to say one, why should we assume that they should want to? So there's that intuitional thing. And then we should say two, how do we understand that disability's possible participation in, um, in the new creation? Like, is it the sort of thing that is completely incompatible regardless of the model that you take up? Is there nothing that could float it or is there, and maybe we just haven't, um, considered it because that'll matter regardless of how you take identity. So yeah, even if it's the case that you could keep the same metaphysical identity, you run into what I what I like to call um, the Star Trek transporter problem. So if anybody's watched Star Trek before, um, you might be familiar with the fact that there's some people in this universe who transporter technology seems great, but they don't want to use it. And why don't they want to use it? Why do they take slow shuttles and everything to go to planets or to visit other people or whatever when they could be beamed instantaneously? This is something a lot of us who have a commute would want. Um, and it's because they say, I don't think it's going to be me on the other side. Like you get deconstructed at your fundamental levels, like atomically and made into this energy stream because it's all sort of sci-fi MacGuffins all the way down. But you get shot somewhere else and then reconstituted. And they ask a really good philosophical question. How do I know that's me and not just a clone of me with all my memories and characteristics? Um, and I think that when God says, I want to save you, Jordan, I want to save you, Nate, I want to save you, Aaron, whoever, I think that God really does want to save us. So even if it's the case that you could have the same metaphysical, numerical individual or whatever, I think that God actually does want to save us in the fullness of our humanity as much as is possible. So sin and all that stuff needs to fall away, but do we need to say that disability is necessarily bound up in that such that it can't persist? I don't, I don't necessarily think so. And I, I have, um, I have a book chapter that will be coming out at some point in, um, the volume. I think it's now titled anime religion and theology. It's with the Lexington fortress series, like religion, theology, and pop culture. Um, but I basically run an argument, uh, to try and say, let's drop the identity concerns. Let's say that, um, someone like Ryan or whoever, like pick your favorite is right that identity stays exactly the same regardless of whether somebody is disabled or not. Could it be the case that there's goods for an individual about being disabled that they wouldn't have otherwise? Um, and I sort of say, it seems like there could be at least a few. And if there's these goods that you could have from being disabled that you wouldn't have from being non-disabled, now it seems weird to say God is eliminating this whole class of person who have these goods that are inaccessible unless they're there. Um, so I say all that to say um, that 
I think a, a lot of this really does hinge on um, our reasons for asking these questions and the presumptions we bring to the table, and that a lot of the work of disability theology is not necessarily a push, this is the disabled person's perspective, you have to agree with this or else you're ableist and you don't understand uh, how God is loving these people or whatever. It's instead to say, hey, disabled people don't necessarily uniformly agree with you, and we should really think about the implications of what we're saying here for them. Uh, yeah, that, that's helpful. Thank you. Isn't part of the uh, the difficulty even in, in parsing out the spectrum of disability? So, for example, physical disabilities and think about eschatology is one thing. Yep. Especially with the uh, relation to identity. Um, it's one thing to say a paraplegic uh, being able-bodied in the eschaton does not lose an identity. It's another thing to wonder whether someone with Down syndrome in the resurrection um, um, is is the same person. And so uh, um, there's a lot of complications there. I mean, I have no solution. So I'm, yeah. this, is, this is me literally asking questions. Um, but can you speak about uh, just, um, well, let me ask you this. Is intellectual disabilities and profound intellectual disability as, as prominent in the discussion as, as physical disabilities? Is, is, it, is it catching up? Um, is, it, is it late late to the party? How, how does that spectrum work in terms of the discussion? It's definitely late to the party. So it's funny. I say, well, Elizabeth Barnes wrote this book in 2016. That's not that long ago. Um, and she's got this model of disability, and I think it's pretty decent. Use it for this sort of stuff. I have to tinker with her stuff a little bit, though, because she explicitly says, I'm talking about physical disability and just physical disability because it gets way too complicated to do the sort of um, like social ontology and metaphysical work that I want to do here if you bring intellectual or cognitive, however you want to parse that disability into the, um, into the game as well. So there's people that have been talking about it, like Hans Reinders and different people are talking about um, intellectual or cognitive disability. Amos Young obviously is doing that because Down syndrome sits like on the fence between physical disability and intellectual disability. It has components of both. Um, and so you see a lot of discussion about Down syndrome, particularly as a sort of good candidate for, well, this does seem to be sort of identity making or whatever for an individual it's actually not clear how you sort of scoop the down syndrome out of them and have the exact same um person in either a narratival or a metaphysical sense um i think that you can still argue about that to a degree um and can have independent reasons for wanting to say that someone persists in down syndrome um in the or someone persists as a down syndrome individual in the eschaton but you don't have to just fall into like the identity concerns or maybe it's, maybe it's actually good in some ways you can have those things um, teased apart. Um, but there's, there's people that are trying to think more about intellectual disability. It's just obviously way more complicated. And even in disability studies, it's way more complicated whether um, intellectual disability can really be classed the same as physical disability. This is one of the things there where Tempe and his, um, He's got a 2022 piece, which is just like, what is it? Denying a unified concept of disability. It's very straightforward what he's trying to do. And one of his reasons is that like, it does seem really hard. It seems like an intractable issue that um, disability studies faces and disability theology faces in terms of getting something that captures, he gives, I think it's a distinction between, um, it's like congenital paraplegia or something. And then um, like brain damage. It's not clear that the, there is a concept that holds the two of them together um, adequately. So it, it's something where a lot more work does need to be done, but I don't think that it is quite as intractable as he says that it is. So in my own works so of some of the work that I'm doing in my thesis, some work that I've got um, out for review right now that I'll hopefully hear something about um, before too long and trying to say, hey, here's a, 
here's a model of disability that captures some of these different concerns. Um, I have this idea of what I call the eschatological disc bracket discontinuity model. So continuity and discontinuity. And what I tried to do there is take some of Amos Young's work where he does a lot with eschatology and say, there's a lot that's good here about the is, is not tension between pre-resurrection and post-resurrection embodiment. We want to keep a lot of that, but also, and this is the thing that I think um, I've mentioned to this to Ryan before, I think that they sort of talked past each other in their back and forth in Ars Disputande, because I think the fundamental issue was that Amos doesn't actually have a clear definition of disability that works for what he wants to do in his book. And so I try to take um, the, what I think is the pretty nice uh, conceptual car that he's given us and put a new um, conceptual motor into it. Take out the one that he's gotten put in Elizabeth Barnes's. And uh, I bring those two together in the eschatological discontinuity model where I say something like disability is a neutral difference maker simplicator. It can be good for you at some times. It can be bad for you at others. Um, but it's included in God's acts of creation as a type of embodied diversity. And so given the breadth of disabilities that exist among all sorts of different types of human persons, different times and places, and the various degrees to which um, uh, individual disability may or may not be valuable to them, um, I say disability might, it could, emphasis on the conditional, it doesn't have to, but it could persist eschatologically if it's what I call an identity-making property for them. And that's something I'm still working out if that's um, if that's how I want to keep that sort of terminology, but I think of an identity making property as the sort of thing that helps you get around the transporter problem. So an identity making property doesn't solely constitute your identity. Um, it can coexist with a lot of identity making properties, but it's the sort of thing where if you have it at a time T and then you lack it at a time T one or, you know, any other T, then it's going to cause you to question whether you're the same person that you were at T. And so it tries to sort of straddle that line between, well, yeah, it seems like some of these things are identity conferring. So like I, for one, don't know how, I just can't understand how you could take a person with Down syndrome who's lived a full life as a person with Down syndrome decades and decades um, and sort of scoop that part out of them and resurrect just the non-Down syndrome part and really significantly speaking, have the same person. Um, like maybe you have the same metaphysical individual, but it really does seem like you lose something fundamental to how they were prior um that unless you assume everything about down syndrome is bad i don't know why you want to scoop all that stuff out um but also allows the flexibility to say listen this isn't how all disabled people understand being disabled um stump brings this out really well she talks about um helen keller who we're probably all familiar with who really seemed to chafe against being disabled and we have like in some of um the diaries recorded from her life and stuff her talking about longing for the resurrection when God would heal her, like in the Bible and stuff. Um, but then you've got someone like Harriet McBride Johnson, who was, or McBird, I forget how you pronounce her middle name, but she was a disability rights attorney um, who lived a really interesting and full life, and she was disabled herself. Um, and it seems like she, Stump says that it seems like Harriet was the sort of woman that she was in no small part because she was disabled. Whereas Helen doesn't want to be disabled anymore. And this is where Stump brings in that idea of the convergence of your um, your heart's deepest desires. That it's not that God just has to do one or the other. God doesn't have to practice what um, Candida Moss calls heavenly eugenics. Just make everybody the same. Like they're all, they're all one. God can still allow for diversity in these things. And perfection in its fullest sense can still exist. Um, so I hope that gets at what you were... Um, what you were asking. I do acknowledge that I will tend to talk in like one long segue. 
So I've got like 10 thoughts and ideas and questions here. Pick your favorite. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, this is all really interesting and helpful as I think about it. So you would say there are people who, and I think this, the way you've explained your view, it seems to make sense to where, let's say I was in a bad accident um, and I lost my hearing, but I want it back. In the resurrection, I'll get my hearing back. But that's different than somebody who was born with Down syndrome and that's their entire experience and they want to stay with that way because they have, like you've discussed, these goods that w wouldn't otherwise be accessible. Is that the right way yeah, to think about there's, it? Yeah, there's a really interesting line of thinking that's I've seen just in the past few years in the literature um, that seems relatively new. Um, but if people are familiar with Marilyn McCord Adams's work in Christology and her idea of defeat, that there's all this evil that exists in the world and God needs to do something about it. And so what God does is defeat that evil that I can't remember the actual like full definition of it, but it's essentially that the evil is incorporated into a greater like body that is so good. So as to not make it good, but it sort of um, ameliorates the, the badness of the evil because you couldn't have gotten that good without the evil. Um, so she talks about like the union that humanity has um, with God and everything. And her, her, her Christology hinges on this, that that's what Christ does in becoming incarnate and uh, through the atonement and all this sort of stuff. And there's a move that some people will make now. Um, it comes up in Hilary Yancey's contribution to the TNT Clark handbook of um, analytic theology. There's a great little piece um, by a guy called Nicholas Colgrove, who is a postdoc at Wake Forest University if anybody um, is a Demon Deacons fan in North Carolina, um, on the incompatibility, brackets out in, so in or compatible, um, of the privation theory of evil and the mere difference view of disability, where he runs this and says, listen, just because you have a privation theory of evil, like, you know, you run the sort of Thomist idea um, that he's working with particularly because this is a National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. Um, he says, even if you want to run this sort of view that there's a privation, that's a form of natural evil just in how, Thomas seems to talk about the stuff in De Malo and the Summa and everywhere. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to chuck out the mere difference view of disability or that disability can't persist in the eschaton because it's entirely possible that a la Marilyn Adams, the evil, the bad making aspects or whatever of this disability are defeated by God in the eschaton. And so that's not like a knockdown. Um, that's not a, a knockdown solution to the question of, but how does this stuff stay? It's a really complicated issue and eschatology is, inherently kind of fanciful like we don't have that much direct data about it either from scripture the tradition none of us have been there um so we are just sort of having to think through it as best we can but i think he gives and some others give good reasons to say even if you take that strong view that disability is a privation of some ability that you should have and therefore a type of natural evil that doesn't necessarily get you off the hook in terms of but why does that mean it has to go away uh either uh, so I have one question, and I hope that this is, as, as I go, I'm about to depart and care for my son Isaac. Um, but this is the uh, um, the analytical confessional uh, Baptist podcast. So I have one I have one question uh, for uh, uh, the confessionally minded uh, uh, people who are listening to this, which which will be many. Um, in the streams of disability theology, um, is there any concern that there are going to be some who are going to think about God and Scripture through disability and try to understand God and Scripture through through that way? rather than try to understand humanity and disability 
um, um, by thinking about God and, and, and his word. Does that question make sense? Is, is, that, is that a fair question? Is that a fair concern? It, it sounds, or, tell me, tell me if I'm getting it right. Cause it sounds to me, you're asking something like, are we going to put the like disability, disability studies cart before the theological horse type thing? Yeah. I think in, in some like liberation models, are we going to, are we going to speak and talk about God in a way, um, that is thinking about him through disability rather than trying to understand humanity and disability in light of who God is and who he has said he is um, in his word. Is that, is that a fair concern or am I, uh, um, or am I, you know, being too confessional or, or, or something like that? Is, is that? is that fair? I think it's always a concern worth having because humanity is really good at building idols. We see that time and time again, right? Um, and we do that in our own life still today. We don't build up actual little gold balls or whatever, B-A-A-L-S, um, to, to worship. But we do uh, deify our career or different things about our lives, and we pursue them as though they are ends in themselves, that they're not instrumental goods for us, but that they're the thing that our life is about. Um, so I think it's always worth asking, but I think sometimes... Um, so like we're all white guys here. We're all um, in fairly privileged context, like just being I'm not in America right now, but like being American, being from like a first world country, quote unquote, there's just a lot that we don't have to deal with. Um, and so it's also important when you think of like liberation perspectives, which disability theology isn't necessarily like a one to one sort of species of liberation theology, but it does have liberationist sensibilities in it, you know, like centering the, um, the testimony of oppressed people. Um, as important in your theologizing, it's important to remember that, like, as much as we have that concern, there's also a concern that we should have that uh, Matthew 25 brings up to us again, that we do need to make sure that we are actually, like, uplifting uh, the oppressed and the marginalized because this is what Christ is doing. And we do need to make sure that, like I said before, that the Evangelion is actually good news for all these people that are hearing it. That doesn't mean capitulating and just making it attractive and shiny or whatever, but it means thinking really seriously about what you're saying when you're proclaiming um, the gospel and you're proclaiming a certain type of redeemed humanity and everything. Um, so I do think it's a very important question, um, but and I don't think that you're doing this, but I think that it is also important to remember that sometimes people will ask questions like that to get them off the hook from thinking further. It's like, well, I, I want to make sure that... Uh, we're just thinking about God. And so I'm just going to norm scripture or whatever. It's like, listen, man, you're not an island. <laughs> you have a lot of assumptions that come into this already that you need to be working through. And so what we actually want to do is just have the most robust theology that we can. Like, that's what the podcast is supposed to be about. I think that's what good theology is about in general. So, um, yeah, have the question, but make sure that you're thinking about the questions on the other side of it, too, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have a more practical question. And it seems that no matter what view you take on disability, the reality for us today in a local church, local parish, is that there are people with disabilities. And I would venture to say that most churches are probably inhospitable to people with disabilities, not because they're like actively trying to to be inhospitable, Hopefully but they just haven't taken out. the time... <laughs> Yeah, they haven't taken the time to think about, like, what could I do to be a more hospitable place for parents of children with disabilities or people who have disabilities and are adults? So, like, give me some, like, practical advice for local churches, for pastors. Like, what can churches do to become more hospitable to those to people who have disabilities? 
Yeah, the the thing about I think it's a great question. The problem is just that like so many things in um, congregational ministry, it always ends up being, well, it depends on your context, right? That there usually aren't cookie cutter solutions that you can say, if you do this, then your church will thrive. Or if you do this, then you incorporate disabled people or whatever. Because there are some churches where it may just be demographically, you don't have certain types of disabled people in your congregation. So if you're trying to do a bunch of stuff um, that's oriented towards that, you could be neglecting other needs. But um, as you pointed out, there are disabled people in most congregations of different um, degrees or who would identify with that term to different extents. And so it's always worth thinking about, but it becomes a matter of how do I do this in my context? So I think a big thing for, there's a few big things that you can do regardless of where you are, regardless of your denomination, all this sort of stuff. The first is just to do that rigorous theological thinking about disability. So you actually know what you're talking about. And I think that's going to involve setting down, like coming from a disability theology perspective, obviously, I'm going to say that that involves um, setting down a presumption that disability has to be bad for disabled people. And instead listening to what disabled people in your congregation say about being disabled, hearing what their needs are and what their experiences are. Um, When you're working from that perspective, you're also then going to need to start involving disabled people more in your congregation. And so I think a lot of people will have this idea that the way I involve disabled people in my church is by building a ramp or whatever. It's all about like physical accessibility. We have one of those pews that has like the lip at the back. So somebody in a wheelchair can, can use it. But one, that may not be the exact need that you should um, be trying to meet. Cause maybe it's not one that's big and pressing for your congregation. Obviously I think that we should be wheelchair accessible, all these sorts of things, but we can't pretend that that's all inclusive of handling disabled um, people's concerns and getting them involved. So that's why talking to them, listening to their experience becomes important. And so you figure out what you need to do to meet their needs and how you involve them, how you involve them in corporate worship, how you involve them, particularly in leadership. Um, So I I think it's Amos Young I'm thinking about here, but he talks about how um, the church that his brother who has Down syndrome is in actually does involve him in, in leadership stuff. It doesn't mean that he's involved in the exact same way that anybody else would be. Um, but he is involved meaningfully in like this sort of pastoral care ministry because he um, he's very empathetic, like praying with people, doing these sorts of things um, that are leadership roles. Um, and so feeling out how people can be plugged in and supported to do those sorts of things can be important. Like there was a church that I uh, was a effectively a youth pastor and it was a different title, but um, doing that sort of role. And so I thought it was important that kids have the opportunity to read scripture in services um, because in like the liturgical context, like that's something that's always happening. It's not something where it is a role of authority. Like the readers can decide stuff per se, but when someone gets up there and they read from God's word, that is an implicit uh, handing of some authority to them. And I think it's important for kids to see themselves as really involved in that part of the church's ministry. And one of our um, kids who was really excited about this sort of stuff, he had a, um, and still has presumably, because uh, it's not been that long, a uh, like a reading delay and a speech delay. So he wasn't like quite on the same pace as some other kids. And so at that point, you can just say, well, this is what we're doing. So he can't really be involved. Or you can say, well, is this how we have to do this? Because he would really like to be involved and he would have a great sort of witness through his enthusiasm and his energy and everything. Um, And so we just changed, like when kids are reading, we picked a translation of the Bible. I don't remember which one it was. It wasn't like the message or something, but it was not as 
hard for a elementary school to read as say like the new revised standard and new king james or whatever um and he did great and he did just as good as everybody else um and we were glad to have him every time so thinking about what you can do with your own people um throughout all levels of church involvement is important and uh especially for ministers and people on staff and stuff it becomes important to think about how we discuss disability particularly in teaching contexts and that includes to me congregational worship and preaching and such so if you're going to give um, a sermon on the man born blind for example it's really easy to just focus on spiritual blindness spiritual blindness all this sort of stuff um but just keep in mind yeah that's an analogy that works that's an analogy that scripture uses of spiritual blindness but do you in using it want to say blindness is always bad and it's this awful thing and blind equals bad in this analogy. Cause I think most people don't intend to say something like that. They intend to use it as a heuristic device. Um, but just thinking about what are we saying when we're saying different things, how do we, um, how do we use our speech? Cause I think that there's still great lessons to be taught in that passage from John. Like the, the fact that, in a context which we would today call very ableist, you know, very privileging of people of particular body types and functions and stuff. The fact that Jesus doesn't assume there that the guy wants to be healed. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And that the man seems to be able to sort of get around on his own. And then when people say Jesus who sinned this man or his parents, he says, um, it wasn't anybody. It was so um, the kingdom of God could be shown forth and these sorts of things. That's all the makings of a great sermon to me. And it doesn't require you using um, sort of ableist tropes, I guess we could say, things that just presume that, well, obviously disability is bad, so I'm going to use it as like a foil in my analogy or whatever. So there's, there's three main steps I think everybody can do regardless of your, um, your context. And it is that set down these presumptions, listen to the disabled people around you in your congregation, read disability theology, these sorts of things, involve disabled people in your church at all levels, um, and then... Think about how you're talking about disability, uh, because, of course, these things become feedback loops, too. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. This has been really helpful. So remind me, do you have a website I where do. you post? Okay. Yeah, cool. so what is I, it? I have um, AaronBDavis.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter, just my full name, um, Aaron Brian Davis. I'm on Phil Papers. I'm on academia.edu. Um, I try to be very findable and I try to put stuff um, out so like copies of papers and such out there for people to get as well but if there's anything that's not available I'm always happy to share with anybody who reaches out through any of those modes of contact awesome well Aaron this has been great Um, I I think this has been a a really useful resource to open up the topic so thanks for doing this with us Um, for everybody who's been tuning in go check out his website read the stuff Uh, I think it'll get you thinking which is the whole point And thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.